Welcome to the podcast that will teach you how to successfully invest in and build steady streams of passive income from the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Veteran real estate investors Kevin Bupp and Charles Dehart from Mobile Home Park Academy will personally share with you the valuable lessons they've learned along their journey as mobile home park investors so that you too can learn how to build massive cash flow and huge profits from this extremely lucrative niche. So without further ado, let's welcome your hosts for today's show, Kevin Bupp and Charles Dehart. Welcome, guys and gals, to the Mobile Home Park Academy's weekly podcast, where we'll provide all the information that you need to know to successfully locate, negotiate, close on, and make huge profits from the lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. I'm your host, Kevin Bupp, and in today's show, we're going to be speaking with mobile home park owner and operator, Andrew Keel. Now, Andrew is the owner of Keel Team LLC, and his team currently manages 16 manufactured housing communities across six states. His expertise is in turning around undermanaged manufactured housing communities by utilizing proven systems to maximize the occupancy while reducing operating costs. He specializes in bringing in homes to fill vacant lots, implementing utility buildback programs, and improving overall management and operating efficiencies, all of which significantly boost the asset value and net operating income of the community. So, guys, I'm incredibly excited to have a candid conversation with Andrew. It's been too long since we had him on last time. Uh, excited to talk about the variety of industry-related topics, uh, some of the crazy times that we find ourselves in today. But before we get on to it, I just have a few quick housekeeping items I'd like to run through. Uh, first and foremost, I, I tend to forget to mention this uh, on a regular basis, so I'm going to mention it here now. Uh, we're always in acquisition mode here at Sunrise Capital Investors. Um, uh, always looking for good opportunities, good deals. And if you have an opportunity, either maybe you're looking for a big fat finder's fee that we'd love to pay you on, or maybe you're looking for an operational partner, JV partner, capital partner, what have you. Love to chat with you about what it is you have and, uh, and see if it might be an opportunity of working together. You can simply go to our website, sunrisecapitalinvestors.com and send us a, a message through the contact page. And uh, just include some basic details and include your contact information. I'll be back in touch with you. Uh, next up here, I want to remind you of the free gift that we offer to all listeners who take the time to leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Uh, we will give you the exact cold call script that we use in our very own mobile home park business. Uh, we have purchased about half of our $75 million portfolio from our cold calling efforts. And so, I'd say if you're serious about getting started in this business or uh, maybe you're, you're, you've got a couple communities where you're looking to take it to the next level, then you really need to be cold calling park owners directly and this script will put you on your path to success. To redeem this gift, just go and send an email over to gift at mobilehomeparkacademy.com and tell us who you are and what screen name that you use to leave that review and we'll send that gift your way. And now guys, without further ado, I'd like to bring on my good friend and uh, mobile home park operator extraordinaire, Andrew Akeel. Andrew, how you doing, buddy? Good. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah, man. It's been a long time. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I had you on the show. It's probably been a, over a year now, a year and a half, maybe even closer to two years. I know time flies. And I remember the very first time that we met, Andrew. We met, um, uh, we, had, we had spoken a few times on the phone, but we met at MHI. I think it's, it was probably two years ago, maybe three now. Again, I, I lose track of time here. Uh, and uh, back then, I think you had purchased one community and now you're up to 16. So you've grown by leaps and bounds. You're making lots of big things happen. And, um, and you've become a, a very integral part of the uh, mobile home park uh, industry. And so just kudos to all your success that you've had. It's been great to see you grow. And so uh, super excited to have you back here and, and you know share some of your insights that you've learned over the years with our listeners. But before we get into the, the nitty gritty, you know, for those folks that might not be familiar with you or who you are, maybe just take a few minutes, tell us a little bit about your background and ultimately how you got into the mobile home park space. 
Definitely. And thank you for that introduction. Um, so I, I started out actually flipping houses around the central Florida area uh, and wanted to, you know, ultimately build more consistent cash flow. Uh, I was sending out letters, doing bandit signs, the, the traditional, you know, fix and flip model and wholesaling model. And I, uh, through a yellow letter that I sent out, actually got a lead on a couple of mobile homes in the Ocala, Florida area that were in a mobile home park. And I had never come across these before, but I knew that I could make some money on them because the guy only wanted $2,200 cash for both of these like 1995 vinyl sided shingle roof homes that were in decent shape. So I got on YouTube and I started Googling how to make money with mobile homes and lots of funny stuff came up and came across this guy named Lonnie Scruggs, uh, who I ended up buying his book, Deals on Wheels, and ultimately... Uh, you know, diving in and I did almost 20 of those individual mobile home deals where I would buy them, fix them up a little bit and then sell them on contract. Mm -hmm. So I started there. That was my, my entry into the, the manufactured housing space. And through that, I met some park owners and uh, ultimately wanted to get into owning, you know, the entire park and didn't, you know, didn't know what my first step would be. So I went to, you know, the MHU boot camp. I went and did some, some additional seminars and uh, ultimately just started calling park owners and ended up finding a, a deal uh, in Edwardsville, Illinois. I ended up contacting some of the people I met at the MHU boot camp, and they ended up being uh, my first investors in mm -hmm. that first acquisition. Since then, I've done syndications where I've you know brought together a group of investors to purchase properties and uh, it's just been, it's been a good road. I, I would say our niche is in the value add space, you know, buying properties less than a hundred units that, you know, are 60 to 70% occupied, uh, you know, working on infill, billing back for utilities uh, and other, other methods to increase the, the net operating income of the communities. And that's been our, our niche. Uh, and it's been, it's been great. Fantastic. I appreciate you sharing that with us. And just to give some uh, context, uh, what year was it that you bought that very first community? That was in June of 2017. Okay. Okay. So we're, we're talking less than three years ago. That's awesome, buddy. Yeah. That's awesome. Kudos to all your success, man. That's, uh, that's quite a feat, uh, not just purchasing one, but then ultimately scaling your business. Uh, you know, I always like to say that in this industry, you know, buying one is, there's challenges with it, right? It's not easy by any means. If it was, everyone would be doing it. But buying that first one has its challenges, but they're easily uh, overcome, easily, e easy to overcome. Uh, buying the second one you know, poses some additional challenges, uh, you know, additional bandwidth needed. Uh, and then the third one, that's when you start getting stretched a little bit and it's still exciting. You know, you're still pretty much a solopreneur at that point in time. It's very hard to um, you know, to hire staff, what have you, from the revenues produced from, you know, two or three smaller communities. Um, and then I feel like a lot of operators, they hit a wall, right? They hit a wall to where they've only got so much of their own time. Uh, they don't necessarily maybe have enough revenue to hire uh, those key folks that they might need to, to scale their business. Maybe they've run out of their own capital. They have to start considering syndicating capital from outside investors, what have you. And so, Talk to me about that period of time that, um, you know, the proverbial wall that maybe you didn't hit it, but you realized that uh, in order to scale, you had to do X, Y, and Z to get there. What did that, when was that period of time? And ultimately, how did you overcome those barriers? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And uh, 
it, it really had to do with hiring good people. I got very lucky early on when I needed to make my first hire. Uh, I hired, uh, he was actually a friend of mine that was working at a, a software firm and he was like a project manager at this sports marketing software firm that was developing software for like event management. Mm-hmm. And he was working with developers and, you know, it, it was, you know, basically managing what they were doing, you know, fixing different, you know, glitches in the software and so forth. And he was just underappreciated and just was just tired of it. And he'd been there a while. So I met him at the gym one night and said, Hey, Hey dude, like this is going to sound crazy. I know you don't really get what I do. I'm in the the mobile home park space, but you know, things are, we have the opportunity to grow over here and I'd love to bring you on. So he, he early on, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't have the, you know, the, uh, the funds and, and the ability to recruit, you know, and pay, you know, really high salaries and things like that. So mm-hmm. he agreed to take a, take a pay cut and come work with me. And, you know, it's just been a, it's just, it's just been a, one of the best things I ever did because it enabled us mm-hmm. to grow so much quicker and, and to have that, that person you can rely on and fully trust, uh, has just been so paramount in our growth. And since then I've, I've been able to, you know, uh, acquire some additional uh, employees that work with us that are great people, and you know we have a good we have a good culture. So, I I would say that that's a big part of how you know I've grown to to where we are today. Uh, you know, in addition to that, you know my personal expenses for for where I live. You know my my personal expenses. I have been a big fan of just keeping those very very low, mm-hmm. so that. I can reinvest everything and and that's what I've been doing for the past you know really five years is you know every every big win that we've had we've we've just reinvested into the business and uh, continued to be able to uh, you know hire more people you know where some people would get a big win they get a, a sale or a refinance you know we we saw that as an opportunity to hire someone mm-hmm. uh, to, to grow the to grow the business so that's what we've done and and some people say hey you might have hired uh, a little too quickly, but I'm looking, I'm looking long-term. I'm looking 12 to, you know, 12 months from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. That's what I'm looking at when I hire people. It's not, it's not about, you know, the numbers today. It's about the numbers down the line. Yeah. I can promise you from, from owning businesses, pretty much my entire adult life, you know, real estate and other, you know, non real estate related businesses that it's always better to be ahead of the curve or proactive in the hiring stage and, and uh, possibly hiring someone before you really need them. And it might stress your payroll a little bit than actually being on the reactive side. And so I think you made the, the right decision of reinvesting in your business. And, you know, another thing that I, another point that you've made there that I just, I want to make sure that all the listeners are absolutely clear on, especially if you're just getting started here, is that this is, uh, you know, there, there's money to be made here. But if if you've got, you know, a grander vision of actually growing a business, and what I mean by a business is not just owning one or two mobile home parks, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, you can make very, very good money just by owning one or two parks. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily have to bring partners and what have you. You could do, you create a really solid foundation for you and your family, right? And, and solid fa- uh, financial future. However, if you got that grander vision of actually building a larger company and owning multiple assets in multiple states, there's some delayed gratification there typically. Uh, and, uh, and we've experienced the same thing as we've grown our company over the last couple of years. And so I just, I, I want to make sure that no one has the confusion that, 
just because Andrew's out there, you know, he's got 16 communities or 19 communities, you know, what have you, that he's not putting the money back in and he's not Mr. Rich guy sitting up on the throne. He's doing really well for himself, but it, it takes a lot of time and energy and, uh, and determination to get where he's at today. And, and I'm sure you feel the same way that you've got a lot of growing to do, right? You Definitely. guys are nowhere near where you want to be and you're still looking for those, uh, uh, you know, those different growth stages that you're going to hit here in the coming years. And so with that being said, I love to talk about, uh, you know, uh, one other aspect of the operational side of your business before we get into you know, what, what I think a lot of folks are thinking of today, right? You know, COVID-19 and uh, this pandemic that we're dealing with day by day, we're, we're following the news and we're following the, you know, the significant changes that are happening, not just across the country, but across the world. And so I want to, I want definitely want to go down that rabbit hole with you. Um, but before we get there, I want to talk about the, you know, the, the, the scaling side of your business, but more importantly, uh, you know, the six different states that you're in, you know, and I, I know that one of the struggles for us as we have been growing our company over the last couple of years is, um, is having assets that are located, uh, you know, in different markets, you know, and not just a different market in the same state, but, you know, different states entirety, you know, in, in entirely. And, and actually having that logistical challenge of uh, a travel from one to the next to the next. How have you guys been able to manage that process? And, and do you see a point in time where, again, another barrier gets put in your way to where you've got a scalability issue because you've got assets in, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 different states? Yeah, great question. So with our properties that we own, you know, there's really, they're, they're spread all across the Midwest, all the way from Pennsylvania, you know, like Western Pennsylvania. We have some in Ohio, we have some in uh, Indiana, uh, all the way to Western Iowa, and then all the way south to, you know, Northern Arkansas. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a big area that we have to cover. Yeah. And uh, we try to get to our properties at least once a quarter. So it's really kind of separated out into, into three trips. You know, one, you'll go over and, and do the Ohio, Pennsylvania parks. That'll be one trip. Uh, the next trip you'd go up into like the Illinois, Indiana parks, and you can also, you know, get Iowa. And that's probably our biggest hit when we go up there is, is make a big trip out of it and, and hit all of those assets. Uh, and then we have the ones in the South in Tennessee and Arkansas that we'll, we'll make another trip out of. So, uh, you know, we are gain, gaining scale, uh, as we continue to acquire properties, but, uh, yeah, as with anything, it, it is a little bit more difficult, uh, you know, if you need to get to Iowa and then you need to get to Pennsylvania in the same week, <laughs> sure. you know, <laughs> not, not, not any, many direct flights that go, uh, go that yeah. way. So <laughs> it's, uh, it, it could be trying at times for sure. But, uh, I think with good offsite management systems, we use a couple softwares, uh, one's called Slack and one's called Trello to help mm -hmm. us stay on top of our, our property management. I think that has helped us tremendously. And, uh, you know, having good onsite managers that, uh, you know, communicate well. That, that's that's worth its weight in gold. Yeah. You know, speaking to Slack, uh, we don't use Trello, but speaking to Slack, that is, has been an absolute game changer in our business. And, um, you know, yeah. so if, if, if those that are listening aren't familiar with it, it's a uh, an incredibly effective communication tool. We've got, you know, various channels set up. So we've got channels with each one of our community managers, uh, we've got leadership channels just for the you know leadership uh, folks in our company. We've got, but bottom line is it's an incredible, it's by far my favorite. It's, it's it's 10 times more efficient than standard email. Um, and uh, it's, it's just a very 
uh, open forum way for everyone within your company to communicate and stay abreast of what each other is doing. So again, just a game changer. If, you ha- if you're not familiar with it, definitely look into it. Uh, even if you're just small today and it's just maybe you own one community, you should look into it because it's a very uh, scalable program that can grow with your company as you acquire more uh, properties uh, throughout these coming years. So with that being said, I want to I wanna switch the gears a little bit, Andrew. I want to talk about you know, the big news of today. And I mean, the big news uh, as we sit here on uh, March sorry, Mar- yeah, April 3rd, March 31st. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Look, I'm already getting ahead of myself. I'm very uh, optimistic as far as you know, how this is going to play out over the next coming month or so. Uh, so March 31st, uh, we're basically uh, one day before, um, you know, it's kind of like D-Day if you're a landlord. This is, you know, it's, it's been the, uh, uh, you know, the, the talk of the town throughout, not just the mobile home park industry, but ev- anyone that has a rental property that has a tenant in it, right? Unless, unless it's Section 8, I think that's maybe the only folks that feel some uh, insulation from what's, you know, p- potentially going to play out here over the coming months. And, you know, for the most part, there's been a moratorium placed uh, on evictions across the country. Um, uh, some state specific are much more strict than others. Uh, and, you know, the big fear, uh, as a lot of folks have lost their jobs, they've been, you know, uh, you know, furloughed or just let go completely. Tons of service workers at, you know, restaurants have shut down, hotels have shut down, just people are out of work. People are in a, a very dire time. And being a landlord, obviously, we expect to receive rent on a monthly basis. And uh, that might be a little bit of a challenge, even with the, um, uh, the financial stimulus that was put into place here a couple of days ago, even with the, uh, the boost in the unemployment benefits that have, uh, are being put forth. You know, there's still a lot of uncertainty as to what the coming months will hold and our ability as landlords to collect rent. And so, I know that we've uh, been strategically uh, planning behind the scenes our company and trying to figure out not necessarily how to get in front of it because I don't know if there's a way to get in front of it, but there's a way to be prepared and there's a way to not be prepared, right? And so we've been trying to figure out what worst case scenarios look like for us and then strategically put some systems or protocols in place to not just address those worst case scenarios, but more importantly, to open up a uh, an, uh, an open line of communication with our residents because this isn't a this isn't just the landlord problem. This isn't just the tenant problem. This is a problem that starts from the top and goes all the way to the bottom. Um, you know, and, and so this is a, we're here to work together. Uh, we're, we're here to find a solution as a team. Uh, this isn't one pitted against the other. And so, uh, and, I, and I'll surely share what our protocol is going to look like as we move forward. And I'm sure it will evolve as well as time goes on, depending on how this plays out. But I'd love to hear from your perspective, Andrew. I guess, first and foremost, just what are your general thoughts of, the time that we find ourselves in today, you know, how are you feeling as a business owner? Are, are you optimistic? Are, you know, are you a little scared? What have you? And then ultimately, what processes have you put into your own business to help, I guess, uh, get through this, you know, seemingly challenging time that we're facing? Sure. So first off, uh, you know, I think with this pandemic, uh, you know, I totally think it's a it's a black swan type of event. You know, I think it's it's something that you know is not going to happen every year, uh, and it's it's something that's just kind of out of left field that we're we're faced with. Um, I would say that I'm really happy that we're in affordable housing. You know, during this this time, I think that the the demand for affordable housing will continue to be strong, as we've seen. You know, even even with uh, with people being furloughed and and people out of work. You know, we're still getting demand for our ads that are 
that are up to sell homes in our communities. So that you know makes me makes feel confident in our business model. Uh, some things that that we are doing. Uh, there's really five things that we've done. Uh, number one, we had a rent increase that was due to start April 1st in a couple of our properties. Mm-hmm. So we we sent out a letter to our tenants, just basically saying, hey, you know, we're gonna we're gonna pause that at this time until further notice. Uh, just to not add add salt to the wound, you know. We're, let's let's just pause that for now. Uh, number two, we have uh, given our tenants in the letters we mailed out to all of them. Uh, we gave them five options for rental assistance, either through their county, either through the Salvation Army, through you know. There's there's different options available for tenants. For like for example, like if people dial two one one. There is the most up-to-date information on federal grants for rental assistance and other programs. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of tenants don't even know about these things. So yeah. we, we gave them all several options of who they can call. And a lot of the stimulus money is going to go to those programs because some of them you know, maybe have a certain, certain budget, but those budgets will be increased you know, based off of uh, the stimulus package. So we, we gave our tenants those links and phone numbers so that they can can use those. And uh, I think that was one of the, the big things we did. Uh, we've been very compassionate with the tenants instead of like very, uh, you know, very, you know, black and white, very, you know, rigid, I guess you could say, uh, because this is a, a very uncertain time for them and for us. And it's, you know, we, we're, we're trying to be very understanding. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we communicated with them that, you know, hey, our bills are still due. You know, insurance mm-hmm. still needs to be paid. Taxes need to be paid. You know, our bank to date has not told us that, you know, we're going to be giving a, a forbearance. You know, we, our mortgage is still due. So we've just communicated with our tenants, told them these things so that they know where we're coming from. Uh, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, we're, we're you know, going to see where things play out, you know, on the 5th. I think a good portion of our tenants are on social security and disability. So they have fixed incomes that, that will not be affected by this. Uh, I think, uh, you know, with the checks that are being sent out, you know, I think that'll help uh, with, with some of their cash flow problems. Uh, but if, if people do have a, a solid issue and they have been furloughed or laid off from work, you know, we will work with them during this time and offer payment plans. You know, I, I think that's going to be something that, uh, you know, will be, will be common during this time because if someone's paid, you know, on time for the past 24 months and they have, you know, no history of any issues and then, you know, now they need some help during this time, you know, we, we want to keep these people. We don't want high turnover mm-hmm. in our, in our, in our parks. So right. that's, that's a big part of what we're going to be doing. And, uh, through the, the letters we mailed out to our tenants, we also made sure that they had a, we have a corporate email address. That's like, you know, corporate management at gmail.com. And we wanted to make sure that they had access to that so that they knew, hey, if you don't want to go, you know, walk up to your manager's, uh, you know, office and, and ask for a payment plan or something like that, uh, because it, it, I think there's like some, uh, I don't know, intimidation or, you know, what, what you want to call it. But I feel like some tenants, you know, are very shy when it comes to money. And that's just either how they were raised or, or, or whatnot. But we wanted to give them an option to reach out to us because I think communication is going to be very, very important during this time. And the people that communicate with us, you know, we'll be, we'll be willing to work with. So we, we gave them a corporate email address that's kind of something that they, 
they can avoid the the face to face contact if needed to to tell us what's going on. Well, not just that. I mean, just even the you know the social distancing you know aspect of things, and you know yeah, not not forcing them too. to actually have to have a go at, uh, you know in person confrontation or not necessarily confrontation or just you know a, a meeting with the community manager, right? You know where they could be potentially putting not just their own health at risk, but also the community manager and, and anyone else that might be around them. So. No, I, that, that's all great information. I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, we, we've taken, uh, taken a very similar approach. You know, we've already sent out a letter, you know, leading with compassion, you know, sharing a lot of those resources that you outlined as well. Also, uh, uh, iterating that basically our obligations are still present and that, um, you know, they have not been relieved of their obligation to pay rent. Uh, we have not uh, proactively taken the approach of saying that we will work with them on a payment program. However, we have set up a, we call it the COVID-19 hotline. So we literally set up a dedicated phone number um, in the event that they're uh, facing financial challenges uh, due to the you know, COVID-19 pandemic uh, to, you know, call our, our hotline. And we literally have a, a person on our staff um, she is the point person and uh, she's aware of what type of workout programs will offer. Um, basically, she's aware of the entire protocol. And so they will have a live person they can speak with uh, at basically uh, uh, not any time of the day, but nor- no- normal business hours and then also on Saturdays um, to, to work through this challenge together. And then in, adi- in addition to that, what we put together is, so this letter went out, they, they've received it uh, about four days ago. Uh, normally what we do in most states, other than New York, New York's its own as far as like what their grace period looks like, but most states, uh, rent's due in the first, it's late on the sixth. So normally, uh, you know, in a normal scenario, we would hand out a demand letter on the sixth, uh, depending on the, you know, the county or state it's in, you know, would depend on when that would actually go to eviction. So, and what we've decided to do, instead of actually uh, handing out a you know, formal demand letter, assuming that they have not proactively communicated with us, respond to our letter, but yet haven't paid their rent, uh, we're going to hand out a, a much more compassionate demand letter, not a legal form by any means, really just a reiteration of our original letter, uh, but with one slight change at the very end simply states that, um, you know, if we have not heard a response from you in the next seven days, then, you know, we'll be forced to take, you know, necessary action. And, you know, what that means to us and to them is that we will serve a formal eviction notice or demand letter notice seven days from that point in time. And although uh, there is a moratorium on evictions, um, I'm of the understanding after studying the language in a lot of these different states uh, is that um, you could still file in most of the states. You can file, however, the courts aren't open and cases aren't being heard. And so uh, we're of the mind that we surely don't want to lose tenants. We don't want to evict people. But however, if they're not, if they're going to claim radio silence and not be proactive with communicating with us, we don't really have uh, another option. And so, you know, we'll essentially look to get in line with the court so that when they open back up, either hopefully we've worked out a payment plan by that point, or we at least won't be, you know, three or four months behind the, the eight ball. And so, again, it's not our intent. It's the last thing we want to do. We're making every attempt to open up that line of communication, work with the residents, and, you know, put a solution together that allows them to stay in their home and allows us to basically maintain our business. Um, so, it's, it's it, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. You know, as you had mentioned, you know, the only lenders that have put forth any proactive uh, forbearance programs are the agency lenders, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and HUD. Um, we do have a few of those loans, but a majority of our loans are not those. And so we've been trying to have proactive conversations with our lenders. Uh, just, you know, we're not in a, a challenge situation today. We're 
um, you know, we've, we've got a, a good bit of cash on hand, uh, you know, not necessarily planning for an event like this, but um, we're in a good cash position. But, you know, things could get fairly dire if 50% of our residents don't pay for three months, right? And so we're just trying to be ahead of the ball uh, on this. And, uh, you know, I know that if this next month or two play out in a much more dire way than what we're anticipating, then everyone else is going to be calling their lender as well. And so we tried to get out and have those conversations ahead of time so that we're not on hold for eight hours trying to get a hold of uh, a representative. Because I don't think banks will be ready for that influx either. They won't be prepared. Just like in 2008, when all the defaults started happening, you know, loan mitigation departments didn't even exist. You couldn't get bankers on the phone. They were just drowning with, uh, with calls. And so, again, just trying to get out in front of it. A few of the other things that we've done proactively, not necessarily um, as far as communicating with the tenants, but we've, we've put a halt on all unnecessary CapEx projects. So road work, uh, other than things that would put, you know, pose a liability. So if we were going to repave an entire section of the park, now we're just going to go ahead and fill in any you know, potholes or, or areas that would you know, cause a liability with the intent that if this blows over the next couple of months, we'll resume normal operations and, and finish that project. Same thing goes with uh, home renovations. You know, uh, we, at any one given time, we you know we could have a dozen home renovations going, and we're trying to address it community by community. Uh, some communities that you know we might only have one vacancy or two vacancies, uh, and we've got a seven or eight thousand dollar renovation. We're just going to hold off on it right now. We're going to hold off and just uh, kind of stand firm and see how the next couple of months play out because that seven eight thousand dollars could come in handy again should things get a little bit more dire than what we anticipate. So just crazy times that we find ourselves in, but the next couple of months are going to create a lot of challenges. Um, those who were already on an unstable foundation will find themselves in a uh, precarious situation. I hope they make it through, but you know, and not to be insensitive to this matter because I'm not, because I'm in it myself as far as we're going to feel some pain. I think there's going to be opportunities that come out on the other side. And so I'd love to get your, your take on that, Andrew. And um, we know that real estate lags behind, uh, behind the stock market. I mean, you know, the pain that will be felt in commercial real estate, uh, if all doesn't go accordingly, will be, you know, many months down the road. You're talking probably minimum four or five months and, you know, we'll see that pain throughout the next probably 12 to 18 months. And so I'd love to get your perspective on what you think might play out um, over the uh, the next year or so. And uh, and if you think there's going to be opportunities that come out of it. Definitely. And to piggyback on what you were saying about the the COVID-19 hotline, I think that's brilliant. I, I, I really think that that is a, is a brilliant tip. One additional thing we did is uh, on some of our parks, we use pay lease and people can pay with credit cards, but they get charged a fee. So we have, we're going to waive those credit card fees. Uh, that's one additional thing we did to try to encourage them uh, to, to still pay. So I'm glad you brought. I'm glad you brought that up, and I don't want to. I want to let you finish. Uh, you're, you're you're about to go on to what my original question was, but we actually have done the same thing, and I just I just failed to, to mention it. So we do use pay lease, and so we have um, waived that transaction fee, and uh, uh, you know we've basically our, our um, in the letter it basically stated that if they are not set up for. Uh, you know, for online payments, uh, what have you, uh, our, our hotline, the girl that's running our hotline will essentially give them a strike. They can walk them through it right then and there. All, all they got to do is call and they can get them set up fairly easily. And then one of the, two of the other things actually that we're doing, uh, this is important. I can't believe I forgot to mention this. This is incredibly important. I think that this will play out uh, in the event that we need to speak to our banks about a forbearance or loan deferral program, or even if we want to go down the road and, and have a little bit of a, a battle with our insurance company about uh, business interruption and why this should or shouldn't be covered. I think there's going to be a lot of cases that play out over the 
over the coming years, um, not just in the real estate industry, but you know, lodging and, and, and the restaurant industry, what have you, of, uh, of big firms fighting or, or suing their insurance company due to this not falling underneath the umbrella of business interruption insurance. And again, I think there was just a case yesterday, and I forget the name of the restaurateur, but big restaurateur, billionaire, has already filed a suit against his insurance company claiming that this should be covered underneath business interruption. So I think there's going to be a lot more of that. And so we want to make sure that we've got all the documentation in place so that we can, if we have real hardship, we can truly document it and prove it. And, and what that means to us is if our uh, tenants reach out to us to uh, facilitate a, a payment program, then we first have an application where they have, it's, it's a very, it's one page. It's very simple. Basically it says, you know, I've lost my job due to COVID-19, you know, check that box. Um, uh, I've lost this amount of income on a monthly basis. Check that box. It, it's very, very simple. Basically, it's stating the reason for their inability to pay that month and in it, that it is directly correlated to the COVID-19 pandemic. And then uh, basically, we'll either approve or disapprove that application. Uh, if it's due to COVID-19, it's approved. And then we, we'll work through a payment program and we have a separate document for that payment program. And so they will agree uh, on this payment program what the monthly terms are, how long it's going to be for, uh, when it's going to start. And then in addition to that, at the very end of it, there's a, and this is not necessarily enforceable, but it's just really to get them in the right mindset that, uh, that they agree to, uh, to, to basically uh, make our company whole or, you know, make their rent whole um, once they receive any of the stimulus funds and or unemployment benefits. And so again, that's not really enforceable, but I just, we want to get them in the right frame of mind that, look, again, we're in this together. You know, we'll work with you, but you got to work with us. And, um, and I want to put it in writing. That way, you know, in the event we have to go to our insurer, we have to go to the banks, we've got documentation, we've got it all in place. It's stored. Um, we can easily whip out a file and say, here are the 18 hardships we've had in this particular community. And this is why we're, you know, uh, uh, you know, applying for a forbearance or loan deferral program, what have you. So anyway, I just want to throw that out there. I don't know if you have something formal like that in place. Um, uh, if not, I'd be more than happy to share with you, Andrew, and, and anyone else as well. In fact, I posted our letter, our main letter, I posted on one of the, uh, the MHP forums on Facebook. And so uh, if anyone listening to this, if they would like us to share the different documents that we've created on our side, they can literally just go to uh, the contact us page on our Sunrise uh, Capital Investors website and send an inquiry and, and we'll be sure to send it over to you. So with that, That's I interrupt awesome. you, Andrew. Yeah. I'm sorry, but you're, you're going to answer my original no, that question. Was, but. <laughs> that was great. That was that was fantastic. I love that hotline idea. That's that's very cool. But but yeah, how I see this playing out, you know, long term, and uh, how commercial real estate kind of lags behind the you know the stock market and things like that. Uh, I do think it'll be uh, be a while before we see anything from this. Um, but I do think that it's it's somewhat inevitable, you know, based off of you know how long people have been out of work and how you know a lot of small businesses are, are shut down right now. Um, I'm thinking it's going to be more like 18 to 24 months down the road uh, before we see, you know, any any sort of uh, discount on, on pricing and, and, you know, cap rates going up, something like that. Uh, but it, I think it'll also depend on the interest rates. I mean, what are you mm -hmm. guys, what are you guys thinking the rates are going to do as we, we get through this? Well, I, I think once everything kind of stabilizes, I, th I mean, rates will have to remain low. I mean, yeah. it's, it's inevitable that they'll have to remain low. But, you know, I, you know, right now there's a number of lenders that have fallen out of space. I mean, it's so volatile. Even Fannie and Freddie, they don't know really 
where to uh, uh, throw the dart onto the other uh, board. And so, you know, rates have gone up over the short term. CMBS has basically dried up completely or basically they, they've come off, they pulled, you know, all the options off the plate. And so, and I, I'm guessing that even local banks, I haven't applied for a loan in the past, you know, couple of weeks, but I'm guessing even local banks are treading very cautiously. And so, but, uh, but I think when this all shakes out that, uh, the, the only way that this, this, you know, the um, quantitative easing actually will have any type of positive benefit is if rates remain low. I mean, if, if you want to, you know, instill the confidence in the consumers and, and the buyers out there and, and keep the economy afloat and chugging forward like it was prior to this pandemic, then the only way that's going to happen is if rates remain low. If they go up, um, then it's going to send another shockwave through the uh, uh, through the world, or, you know, through the country at least, and uh, and ultimately we'll have a complete reverse effect. Again, I'm not an economist, and so, but that's how I feel, and I think that's ultimately the reason behind uh, of, of all the quantitative easing and the stimulus package that's been put forth. So, uh, I guess yeah, I, I don't I, know. I'd love I, your thoughts on it as well. No, I agree. I think rates will stay low. Um, to piggyback on what you were saying. I do have a agency loan in progress right now. It's a refinance actually that is like on the, it's like at the finish line. It's like right there and got an email uh, a few nights ago that Fannie is uh, requiring us to uh, at, at closing secure a reserve of 18 months mm-hmm. of interest payments, uh, a full year of taxes, a full year of insurance, uh, replacement reserves for 12 months. Uh, they're, they're making us keep that aside for 18 months, you know, at closing. So that obviously, you know, cuts into the proceeds we were, we were hoping for. Um, you know, so that's obviously makes things a little more difficult compared to the way they were a month ago. How about the rate? How about the rate? Did they adjust the rate or? They didn't adjust the rate. The rate is still really low. It's, it's sub four. Uh, okay. So, it, you know, but it's, it's right there at the finish line. And, you know, you can see how things change. Like they say, it's not over till the fat lady sings. Yeah. And that might not be the end of the world in the refinance. Again, a little bit of a different situation on a refi. Uh, I don't know your exact situation of, uh, you know, what expectations of investors and things of that nature. But um, that really changes the game on an acquisition. <laughs> if that gets yeah. thrown on your lap uh, shortly thereafter, you know, tying something up and moving, you know, toward the, uh, you know, the funding process. So, um very much changes the, uh, the, the the ultimate outcome of that deal and what the returns look like if you've got to raise another couple hundred thousand dollars of capital to get the deal done. So uh, very interesting times. And again, I think that it, it will all shake out. It's just no one knows right now, right? I mean, it's just uh, uncertain times, not just for us on this call, not for those that are just listening, but everyone in this world, gosh, even the President of the United States, everyone, um, you know, even the medical experts, it's just, it's so much uncertainty and it's just going to be a day-by-day endeavor. And again, it, this is not a uh, my problem or your problem, Andrew. Uh, this is a this is a world problem. We're kind of you know yeah. fighting this battle together, and um, and again, I, we're going to learn a lot over the coming months. And uh, it, it, it's and I you know I don't I don't know if you were an investor back in in you know oh seven and oh eight, Andrew. But uh, you know I, I went through that time. Uh, I had been an investor about seven years prior to that, and went through the crash, and and um, it put me in financial ruins. It was a very challenging time, but I learned so many damn lessons out of that 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 challenging time. Um, while I was going through it the years, couple of years thereafter, because it, it lingered on for many, many years for me to you know, get back and rebuild things. I learned a lot of lessons along the way. And that challenging time, I, I wouldn't change it for the world. 
if you'd asked me in 2009, if I would change the route of the hell, yes, I wish that wouldn't have happened. But now I look back and, and I, and I realize that it all happened for a reason. It's made me a stronger investor, much more conservative in nature. And so I'm uh, confident that we're going to make it through this period. And, uh, and I wish everyone else that's listening and Andrew, including you, that everyone, you know, pushes through this and they come out stronger on the other side. So, but you know, time will tell and uh, we're all in this together. I agree. Yeah, we're, we're in this together. I do think, you know, again, this is, this is a black swan event. I think on the banks, you know, from the bank side of things, the people that we've contacted, they've, they've been more than willing to work with us. They understand Mm -hmm. this and the the bankers have even told us, they're saying, you know, Hey, we learned a lot in 2008. You know, we're, we're, we don't want these, these assets back. You know, we, we, we will work with you. Let's just communicate and, and, you know, just the same thing we're, we're positioning with our tenants. Let's just communicate and talk on April 6th. So April 6th is going to be a big day. I, I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think we'll be, we'll know a lot, a lot more then. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, unfortunately there was two main topics I wanted to chat with you about today and, and we, we've pretty much run out of time. And so I'm going to ask you, I'm going to put you on the spot and uh, I'm going to ask you to agree to come back on another show here in the next coming couple of Definitely. weeks, Andrew. And uh, maybe we can do a brief update on you know how the you know, these couple of weeks have transpired for your business and, and I can share the same. But I really wanted to chat about you know, part of your business model that I think is unique in comparison to the many others that are in the industry, uh, especially of, of your size, is that uh, you know one of the the big opportunities in our, in our business is finding parks that have infill opportunities, uh, infill meaning that there's vacant lots or expansion, you know, possibilities where you can add additional lots and essentially bringing homes in. Uh, while that seems theoretically very simple, um, there's a lot of uh, logistics behind the scenes dealing with local companies that can be, you know, uh, not so reliable. Uh, you yeah. know, there's crossing of state lines issues. I mean, you know, there's just a multitude of issues as far as, if you buy the home, getting the darn thing delivered, getting it set up and, and, uh, and having that to be where it's an efficient process. And what Andrew has done is he essentially has built, or I guess, you know, from scratch, I guess you say you built it, maybe you bought into an existing, but my understanding uh, is that you literally went out and, and built your own toter company. Toters are the trucks that, the little semi trucks that deliver these mobile homes. And Andrew is the proud owner of, I don't know if more than one, but I know you own one toter truck and you've got a, a crew that essentially are the ones that are bringing your homes in and, uh, and getting them set up for you, which eliminates all the variabilities of using outside companies that are, you know, deemed to be unreliable for the most part. So, and I, and I, I wish we could speak about it now because I, it's a, I think it's a, incredibly important topic, but I'm going to hold off on that. I'm just going to make that, you know, leave it with that to pique everyone's interest so that you'll have to tune into the next episode where Andrew and I can go more in depth about that. But uh, with that, Andrew, I guess the last thing I have here before we, uh, you know, wrap it up for the day is um, if there's any words of wisdom that, that you might be willing to, uh, to leave with any of the, the new or aspiring park investors that are listening into this you know, this interview here that might motivate and inspire them as they progress in their MHP investing career, what would those words of wisdom be? Yeah, I would start off by saying, you know, let's start off by saying, hey, you know, during this time, if you do own properties, you know, stay liquid, you know, take, take the advice, you know, that, that, that both I and Kevin gave you. Uh, I think that's a great plan moving forward to try to control what we can control. Uh, but, but after this, uh, for aspiring investors, I would just say that, you know, starting out, one of my biggest worries was, you know, raising capital for deals. And, 
you know, my, I had, I had a mind shift where, you know, it's not really about the capital. If the deal is good enough, the money will come. So I would just say focus more so on finding the deals. I mean, I, I have investors reaching out, uh, you know, even in the current, you know, business environment because they want to get their money out of the stock market, yep. uh, out of the Wall Street casino, and they want to put it into, you know, affordable housing. So I think there is, uh, you know, there is money out there that shouldn't be your primary concern. Your main concern should be finding properties. And for your first deal, I think you should focus on a value add deal uh, mm-hmm. because there's going to be a lot of meat on the bone and you're going to learn a lot. So that's, yep. that, that would be my advice for someone starting out. No, that's fantastic. I appreciate that, Andrew. And folks, if you want to learn more about what Andrew's got going on, you can go visit his website. You can find him at keelteam.com and his last name is spelled K-E-E-L. So keelteam.com. And Andrew, man, it's been an absolute pleasure. Again, we'll have to uh, not make it be a year and a half or however long it's been to, to get you back on. In fact, again, you promised, so I've got you on the record saying that you're mm-hmm. going to come back on in a couple of weeks and we're going to talk about your toter business and uh, learn the ins and outs and all the good, the bad, the ugly about it. So with that being said, brother, I, I wish you the best over these coming weeks and just want to thank you for coming on the show and thank you for you know, sharing all your insight and knowledge with the, the listeners here. Yeah, thank you for ha- having me and I look forward to our next interview. Alrighty, guys. Well, that's all we have. So uh, really appreciate you joining here and just want to remind you to stop by the Mobile Home Park Academy website at mobilehomeparkacademy.com. And you can listen to all of our previous podcast shows. Uh, we've got more than a hundred there uh, for your listening pleasure. So if you have an interest in getting into this business, I definitely start there. It's all free content and we've got, you know, nearly a hundred hours of it. You can also download our popular ebook. It's free. Uh, it's called the 21 biggest mistakes investors make when purchasing their first mobile home park and how to avoid them. I'd say that this it's, it's a required read guys, easy read. These, these are the 21 mistakes I came up with when we were a couple years into this business that I, I saw that we made that I wish I would have avoided. Um, you know, or if I wish I would have known when I first got into the space. So go grab it. It's free. And uh, if you don't, then I told you so. So with that being said, guys, thanks for stopping by and joining us here at the Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Kevin Bupp, signing off. You guys take care. Congratulations for taking the necessary steps to achieving massive success through the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Be sure to visit our website, mobilehomeparkacademy.com to download your free digital ebook version of the 21 biggest mistakes investors make when buying their first mobile home park and how you can avoid them. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to our free monthly mobile home park investing newsletter, which is jammed full of valuable tips, tricks, and strategies to help you accelerate your path to success as a mobile home park investor. More information about this podcast and its hosts can be found by visiting mobilehomeparkacademy.com.